Good morning, all. My name is Emily. We are going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. If you have one of the blue Bibles underneath your seat, that's going to be on page 356. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that with you as you leave today. That's our gift to you. All right. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had, not done, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, good morning, Redemption North Mountain. If we've never met before, uh, my name is Xavier. I'm one of the pastors here. And before I jump into the God's Word, uh, I want to make a few comments. One, this is a Stanley Cup up here, and it is my Stanley Cup. Did I steal it from my wife? Yes. But I love it. I've been drinking a lot more water, so that's why that's up here. Second thing is this, is uh, I just think our churches. Uh, in a really great place, especially with the fact that there's so many people in different seasons of life, and we get to kind of celebrate each other as God is doing good work in our lives. So I think about two couples in our church that I just wanted to celebrate. Uh, the first one, and there's a couple at our church that is getting married today. Uh, their names are Brittany and Bryce, or sorry, Brittany and Braxton, and uh, we are super excited that they are going to get married today, uh, and we just want to pray blessing over them. And then at the same time, so they're about to start their marriage. Same time, there's a couple, Terry and Carol, 
that are celebrating 45 years of anniversary, or of uh, their wedding anniversary, which is amazing. So I just want to give it up for both of them. I don't even know if they're here. Either of them are here. But um, I just wanted to share that and say that I think God is doing good work in people's lives here. So I want to pray for them, and then I want to pray for this uh, message that God would lead and work in this time. So let's pray together. So Father, we thank you so much that we get to gather this morning. We thank you for the way that you work in our lives. We thank you that you have given us your word, that you continue to reveal yourself to us constantly. So we just pray right now, would you lead this time, would you lead us, would you bring us to attention toward what you would have teach us this morning? God, thank you for our church. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the marriage that is happening at this church, the marriages that are continuing to prolong and grow. And we just pray that that would be an example of your gospel as our lives are and as your word proclaims. We love you so much. Bless this time as we get to go to your word. We thank you. Amen. Who here uh, really loves Disneyland? All right, a little more than last time. It was like me and two people last time. Now we have like 10. So I love Disneyland. My wife does too. And I got to go there a ton when I was at my last church because I was pastoring high schoolers. We would go all the time with turnaround trips or different trips. And I just grew an appreciation for their attention to detail, just random stuff. Like, for example, they separate their trash cans like a certain distance so there's never trash on the ground. Like, next time you go to Disneyland, try to find a piece of trash on the ground, and you can't. Because there's all these trash cans that they're putting them in. There's people walking around picking it up. Not only that, but the Matterhorn, uh, it's like this ride, big mountain, snow, abominable snowman, like, jumps out at you. On the inside of that ride, there's a basketball hoop. You'll never see it, and I'll never see it. But it's fun to know that that's just there. On top of that, there's this place called the Bayou. It's like St. Louis, trumpets are playing, there's like bread bowls there, and there's this upstairs room that none of us will ever have access to. I mean, if you do, then talk to me. But there's a place called Club 33. And if you ever heard of it, it's pretty interesting. So Club 33 is a place where uh, people can get into, but it's only through word of mouth. Uh, sometimes there's like a 15-year wait and when you start going there, your activation fee, no lie, is $33,000. And then you have to pay $15,000 every year to continue going to Club 33. So just to start going there, you have to like find someone, meet someone, make the connection, wait on this list, and then pay $50,000. And what is it? It's like celebrities, wealthy people that go up and they get like a five-course meal and they hang out. They're like, yeah, I'm part of Club 33. To be honest, I think it's a little bit of a flex. Like, if you're like Club 33, then you're just like kind of flexing on everyone at Disney. But I knew someone from my old job that worked there at Club 33. She was a hostess there. And her job was two things. She would be uh, bringing people to their seats, but also protecting people that maybe weren't part of that club, making sure that they actually didn't have access because they weren't part of the group that belongs there. So she was standing there one day at her uh, place and somebody walked in that she's never seen before, which is somewhat red flag number one, are they part of this group? So he walks up and he introduces himself. He says, my name is blank blank. He says his name, uh, I have a table and a reservation. So she looks, she's like, I, I don't see your name here anywhere. And he's like, can you please double check? She's like, okay, she double checks. She like goes back, checks the tables, comes back and says, I'm so sorry. 
I didn't see your name on any of the reservations or the tables. Um, this is how you make a reservation. If you're part of our club, just make sure next time that you go in the right process. And he says, okay, and she dismisses him. So she's kind of confused about the interaction. So she goes back to her coworkers and tells them a story. Hey, this guy walked in. His name is, you know, she says his name. And I didn't know who he was, so I sent him away. Do you guys know who that is? And all of her coworkers look at her in shock. They're like, you just sent away the president of Disneyland. <laughs> and she's like, oh my gosh. I don't know what to do. Like the most powerful person there at Disneyland, like the boss's 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 boss. She was like, yep, you're definitely not here. Go away. Uh, and <laughs> so she like calls him. I am so sorry. I didn't know who you were. I'm so sorry that I didn't give you a table, all these things. And she, she was like, okay. He said, hey, I respect you. You did your job, all this stuff. And now they're like friends, which is an interesting story. But the reason she dismissed him was because she didn't recognize him. And when I think about the passage that we just read, I think about how the Israelites were waiting for generation after generation, waiting for the Messiah to come. Like they had all of this text, Isaiah 11, they're waiting for this powerful, amazing Messiah to come and to lead them. And when he comes, they dismiss him because they didn't recognize him. He comes in a way they didn't expect as a suffering servant. Like look at verse two and verse three. For he grew up before him like a young plant, continues on. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus of Nazareth comes to fulfill all of these things the Israelites are waiting for. And when he shows up, no majesty, no beauty, they don't know who he is, so they dismiss him. And in the moment on the cross, when he actually fulfills the prophecy of what we're reading today, taking their transgressions, taking their iniquities, they don't realize what's happening because they dismissed him. But for us, because Jesus resurrected from the grave, he witnessed to many people. He ascended to heaven and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Because of these things, we can look back at this passage and know that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy when he went to the cross. So today, as we go into this passage, this is the lens that we will look at this passage through, the perspective of the cross. And we will be speaking this one truth, this main point that Jesus on the cross is the ultimate display of the goodness of God. Jesus on the cross is the ultimate display of the goodness of God. So let's go into this text and see how the cross actually reveals the truths that are being laid out in this prophecy. And it starts out in a way that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable, but the first thing that the cross exposes to us is the severity of, of our sin. The first thing the cross exposes to us is the severity of our sin. Verses five and six, it says this, but he, and we know it's Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Verse 6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only way for us to really comprehend and understand the significance of God's love on the cross is for us to first understand the severity of our sin that led him there. So for us, the problem at hand seems to be this, that when we talk about this word sin, it's hard for us because it's used so often to really feel the sting and the seriousness of that word. I think about the definition in the Greek uh, is defined as four different things. John Stott explains it this way. It's defined, sin is defined as missing the target. So maybe we have failed to attain a goal towards God. Not only that, but an inward corruption. There's something inside of us that is not right. There's something corrupted and not correct inside of us. Not only that, but stepping over a boundary, God has, has set up boundaries in our life that we see and we step over intentionally, or lawlessness. God has set up a law and we have actually ran away from that law. But no matter the definition, at the root of sin is this desire or inward flinch to rid of the Lord God and to put ourselves in his place. The Swiss theologian Emil Bruner says it this way, Sin is defiance, arrogance, the desire to be equal with God, the assertion of human independence over against God. Even as I explain this, I think it's easier for us to conceptualize or understand sin in our minds than it is for us to embrace the fact that we are sinners. Imagine going up to a random person. You've never met this person, Christian or not. You go up to them and you ask them the question, are you a good person? Most likely, they'll say yes. Even if they've done bad things in their life, most likely people will respond and say yes. Same person, if you ask them the follow-up question, do you think there is something wrong with the world? They will probably say yes. Because there's evil and bad things happening all around us. I think about my wife and I. We went outside the other day to the car. We're like, what's going on in here? We look, somebody opened our car and jacked a bunch of stuff. And the one thing they chose, by the way, was our son's like diaper bag. We're like, what kind of world is this? When the dude's like, it's a really nice diaper bag. Like that. And then they throw all the stuff in the alley, but they didn't throw the diapers out, which is interesting. That's just a, it's an interesting thought, by the way. Okay, but either way, it's easier for us to understand there's sin in the world. There's sin out there in the world. People are doing evil things. There's evil things happening, but it's hard for us to comprehend and embrace, I am a sinner. The reason is we usually justify sin in different ways. One is we have this thought that maybe I'm born with a good nature. I've done bad things, but you know, at the end result, the real inward deep me is a good person. Like, I, I have a good nature. Matter of fact, they did a poll and 52% of evangelical Christians agreed with this statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. But the Bible actually communicates something different to us, as well as the cross, that we are actually born with a corrupt nature. Not only that, but sometimes we'll say things like this, I, I've done good things. Like, we have our list of bad things over here, 
And we go, as long as we do enough good in our life to outweigh whatever this is, then I'm good. More than that, sometimes we'll think, I've sinned and I've done bad things, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Like, look at me and look at that guy. <laughs> He's definitely worse, so I'm okay. Or, or the last thing is this, is we just accept we're sinners, but we say, I sin, so what? That's just who I am. I'm a bad person, and I know it, and that's just me. But all of these things are running away from what the cross communicates to us about our sin. And when we really recognize and understand our sin and its severity, we are offended. Like, it's actually offensive. Uh, Joel Sinkavich, he's actually a member here at this church, helped me understand it through this analogy, which is somewhat of a harsh analogy, but uh, follow me through this. You go up to someone, same thought experiment. You say, are you a good person? They say yes. And you follow up and you say, I think you deserve the electric chair. They would be offended. They would be upset. They would feel disrespected because you would be communicating to them they deserve the highest form of punishment. They would think, how dare you say something like that to me? But the cross communicates something to us. Before the cross communicates anything about grace, it first communicates something about our punishment. The cross is first a communication of judgment towards us before it is a display of grace for us. This is why it's offensive, but it's supposed to lead us somewhere to a place where we recognize we are in need. We have to get to the point where we agree with the old theologian G.K. Chesterton. He was asked by London Times to write an essay on the topic, what's wrong with the world? And this was his essay. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We have to get to the point where we agree with him. And for all of you that went to the concert, Taylor Swift, who says, it's me, hi, I'm the problem. It's me. The cross wants to communicate something to us. That we are sinners deserving death, deserving the wrath of God, deserving the punishment of the cross. The cross shows us that we are the problem. And it leads us to a place where we are in need of a savior. And this sounds like bad news. Like you think about what Josh said last week, he was like, we are a good news people. And so far it's like, this all sounds like bad news so far. But for us, like we said, to understand the significance of the love of Jesus, we have to understand the severity of our sin that led him to the cross. It is through us understanding how severe our sin is that we recognize how great of a sacrifice it was that Jesus paid for us. So that is the second thing that the cross communicates. Not only does it show us how severe our sin is, it shows us how significant God's love is for us. Chapter 52, verses 14 and 15 says this, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, 
beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. We'll explain that in a second. And then verses four through six in chapter 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that what? Brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When I think about that passage, I think about um, Annalisa, my wife, and my son, Dom. Uh, Annalisa is fluent in Spanish, and uh, she's teaching Dom some Spanish. I'm half Hispanic, but I don't speak Spanish. Whenever people see my mustache, they'll start speaking Spanish to me, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Uh, Or, (laughs) seriously, or it's like, I'll just, see, like just pretend like I know some things. But Anna's teaching Dom Spanish, and I'm kind of learning too. So from a young age, she's learning stuff. Paga la luz, like it's like turn off the light, I think. Don't quote me on that. I might be wrong. But from a young age, he's learning this language so that as he grows older, it'll just be in him. He'll be able to actually speak Spanish to people around him. In the same way, there's some language that's used here in the passage that we just read that would have been known by the Israelites from a young age. As they grow up, they would have known some of these things and what they meant. And for us, there's a little bit of explanation needed for us to understand the depth of what was just communicated through those passages. So let me just explain some of that for us. God is so holy, meaning set apart, that he can't even be in the presence of sin. And many people think to themselves, if God is good, why doesn't he just get rid of evil and sin in the world? But like we just said, sin is in us. So if God was just to get rid of sin, get rid of evil, that would include killing and crushing us. So for the Israelites, God established a system to deal with their sin in regards to him. Tim Mackey says it this way. He established a practice of animal sacrifice through a sin offering and a guilt offering to display his justice and his grace. God is allowing the animals in the sacrifice to be the the person's substitute. It is symbolically dying in that person's place. So think of it this way, uh, you would show up to North Mountain, if we were living in this time, you'd show up to North Mountain, your Honda Odyssey, you'd tell the kids to get out, like, did you forget the lamb? You'd get the lamb out from the back, you would bring it up front, Josh Watt would be up here in like his priest attire, and you would bring your lamb, lay it on the altar, you would put your hands on the lamb, you would take out a knife, and you would kill the lamb, which thank God, I could not do that. Seriously, you kill the lamb, And then the priest would take the blood and they would sprinkle it in different areas of the temple. And John Stott explains the symbolism in this way. The hands would symbolize the transferring of the sin from the worshiper to the animal. Killing the animal would be a recognition that the penalty of sin is death. They would literally feel that and know this is the consequence of my sin. But then... When the priest would take the blood, it would show that death was accomplished. And as they would sprinkle it, it would show the worshiper's life is spared. So they had a constant reminder of their sin in blood sacrifices. And we'll go back to that point. 
But when Isaiah, this book opens up, God communicates to the Israelites, what are these sacrifices to me? I don't delight in the sacrifices when you guys have been doing evil, you have been participating in injustice, and you've been oppressing people. When you are doing those things and using the sacrifices a way to say, I'm good with God, but I'll continue to do these sins, that is not right with me. So what does God do? He steps on the scene as the suffering servant. Jesus takes on flesh. Verse one and two says this, who has believed what he has heard from us? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So it says these things, but it's communicating something. He is the arm of the Lord, which would mean that he is fully God. He is sinless and perfect, and he's the only one able to make the sacrifice for the people. But not only is he the only one to make the sacrifice, but it says that he grew up before them. He became man. Not only is he able to make the sacrifice, he became the sacrifice for the people. And then he was like a root, meaning they could actually look back at his ancestry and know he is from the tribe of Levi, the only ones to be able to be priest and sprinkle blood. He is also from the house of David, the only one to be the king and lord over them. And he is bringing good news as a prophet. He is the only one that has the qualifications to do this sufficient sacrifice. And how does he do it? In verse four, it says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I just want to make this comment. We've been talking about sin, like the majority of the sermon, and many of you have not been thinking about the sins that you've committed, but have been thinking about the sins that have been committed towards you. And I want you to know Jesus in the flesh carries your suffering carries your grief and he looks at you and says I'm with you you are not alone and it continues on he was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that what brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed not only does he carry our suffering and our grief he carries our sins. So when he's on the cross, think about the hands on the lamb. Our sins are being transferred towards Jesus. He is carrying all of our sins. When he dies on the cross, it's a recognition that that is the consequence of our sin. And when blood begins to come out, we can know it is finished. The sacrifice was sufficient and our life was spared and we can live with God for eternity. And that is good news. That is love displayed for us. That the consequence we deserve because of our sin, Jesus took on our behalf. He could have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone, but instead he came as a suffering servant, carrying our suffering and taking our sin, our guilt, our judgment, and our death. And this is true love. Greater love has no one in this that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laying down his life for us is the display of true love. And this is why we are here week after week, worshiping Jesus, giving glory to him, knowing he paid the price for us. But I think as time goes on, it could be easy for us to forget the reason that we are meeting here each week. I think of it this way. Have you guys ever watched the movie, The Founder? Anyone ever watched that movie? Okay, some of us three of us. Wow. It's more than last time still. It's me and one guy. So it's a movie on Netflix. 
it is really good. It's about, the, um, it's about McDonald's and how McDonald's became what it is. So basically it was two brothers in California running this McDonald's place. That was their last name. And they had this hamburger place that they would be selling hamburgers through. And it started growing some popularity, but it was just one place. Then there's a salesman who is pitching the idea to them uh, to actually franchise McDonald's. And it's through him that McDonald's became what it is. But throughout the movie, there's these moments where he keeps on pitching to them the idea to franchise the restaurant, and they're not convinced. So finally, he comes with the final pitch that convinces them to franchise McDonald's. And it's like the funniest thing to me. This is how he starts it. He comes to them, and he goes, if you boys don't want to franchise for yourselves, do it for your country. <laughs> do it for America. Like, that's what he says. And they're like, we're intrigued. So they go back and they, he starts the pitch for them. And this is how it goes. It's like the funniest thing. He's like, I drove through a lot of towns, a lot of small towns, and they all had two things in common. They all had courthouses and churches. The churches had crosses on top of them. The courthouses had flags on top of them. Flags, crosses, crosses, flags. And he says, I'm driving around. I can't stop thinking about how amazing your restaurant is. And then at the risk of sounding blasphemous, forgive me, those McDonald's arches have a lot in common with those buildings. A building with a cross on top of it, what is that? It's a gathering place where decent, wholesome people come together and they share values protected by that American flag. And it symbolizes some stuff. It symbolizes family and community. It's a place where Americans come together and break bread. And I'm telling you, McDonald's can be the new American church. Feeding bodies, feeding souls, and it ain't just open on Sundays, boys. It's open seven days a week. This is what he says to them. And they're like, we're sold. Like, this is <laughs> the funniest thing in my life. And as I'm watching it, though, I, I literally looked over to Anna, I think in the moment. Like, that's really interesting what he said. Because I think that's how a lot of people think about church. What's church anyways? A bunch of decent, wholesome people gathering together and sharing values. But that's not what church is at all. Church is a bunch of broken, suffering sinners in recognition of their own need, coming to worship the one that saved us from our consequence. We come each week praising his name because he displayed love on that cross. And each week as we remember that truth, we praise him and give him glory because he displayed his goodness on that cross. And because of that, we are free. I think about what Josh said. We are good news people. We are free people. We are saved people. I think about anyone in this room and that maybe you have not, you're coming here, you're interested, you're thinking about this Jesus thing, but you have not given your life to him as Lord. And maybe you're here for the first time. And I want you to know this about our church. We are a bunch of broken people. We are a bunch of sinners. All here with one thing in mind. We know that we need Jesus and we are so grateful that he saved us. And if you're here for the first time, you are invited to join us in recognition that we're just broken and we need Jesus. This is good news that he came on the cross and died for us. The cross displays the severity of our sin, but then it flips it around on us and displays the significance of God's love 
that he took that consequence for us. And then it leads us and displays for us the call of our new life. That through that, we actually have the opportunity to follow Jesus in his righteousness. Verse 11 says this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. We actually gain righteousness through Jesus. J.A. Motyer says it this way, righteousness is more than acquittal. It is a new way of life based on a right relationship with God. We are invited into a new life with Jesus because of his work on the cross. And I think of it this way, the atonement, what he did on the cross, it's finished. By the way, this is one of the things that's really hard for me to continuously believe. This is what God is forming me in, is making me remember constantly, it is not my work at all. It is all Jesus's, 100%. I don't contribute one or two or 3% at all. 100% him. All I have to do is receive that. But because of that, we can live out the value we say here at Redemption. We have these list of values, and one of them is this. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress. We have nothing to prove and no one to oppress. We are a people saved by grace. We are unable to be free from the striving to maintain our reputation and appearances. And we are free to trust in Jesus and to love our neighbor. We can go out and display Jesus by dying to ourselves for the good of others. I think about this example, and even though it's extreme, I think this is the life of the Christian. There's this true story told by Trevor Beeson about a man named Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Polish Franciscan priest, and he was in the Auschwitz concentration camps. So uh, they were pointing out prisoners to be executed. And as they pointed them out, one of the people that was about to be executed yelled out, I am a husband and a father. And then in the distance, you hear the voice of the Polish priest, Maximilian Kolbe, say, take me instead of him. And they did. He gave his life up. They executed him. And the man who was the husband and the father got to live because of him. And that's a display of Jesus. It's an extreme example. Most of us will not be in a situation like that. But no, seriously. But what's the call? For us to die to ourselves for the good of others around us. When we see the people around us in need, we die to ourselves to love them and display what Jesus did on our behalf. So we die to ourselves in our marriages. We die to ourselves in our relationships. We die to ourselves in our work. We die to ourselves in our parenthood. We die to ourselves in our neighborhoods. Everything in our life, all of life, we die to ourselves for the good of others so that they may see the love of Christ through our actions. And it's not in a need to prove anything to God. Everything in our relationship with God is covered through Christ. So now we have freedom to not strive to earn anything from him, but to love the people around us. What an amazing call God has given us to display Jesus in that way too the world. The cross displays a few things to us. It displays the severity of our sin. 
It displays the goodness of God's love and it displays the new call in our life. All wrapped around this idea that it displays the ultimate goodness of God. So for us as Christians, we need reminder of this constantly. And how we do that is through a practice that we actually do every week here. So after our message, what do we do? We take time to sing together, we pray, we give, we do these things. But we have a practice set in our worship to remind us weekly of these truths found in the cross. And that is communion. We take the bread and we take the cup. The bread giving us a reminder that Jesus came in the body and he bore our suffering and our grief. As we take that bread, we can remember that he looks at us and says, I understand, I'm with you. And then as we take the cup, it reminds us of the blood, a reminder that the price was paid in full on our behalf, that it is finished on the cross and that we can live in this new life because of him. In communion, we are reminded of our sin and need, of the way that Jesus conquered our sin and the call on our lives as we follow Jesus. So right now we're going to pray together. We're going to be stepping into worship again and we're going to be taking communion. And as we take communion together, I want you to remember these things about the cross, recognizing our own sin and our own need, recognizing that Jesus fulfilled this all for us and recognizing that as we go out into the world, we get to display his love by dying to ourselves for the good of others. With that in our mind, let's pray together as the ushers come up and as the band comes up. So Father, thank you for your goodness. Jesus, thank you for your finished work on the cross. You could have left us to our own destiny and rightly so. Yet you showed your love to us by coming and making the sacrifice that only you could. And we thank you for that. We pray that all of our life would be found in that truth, Jesus, that all of our life would be found in the fact that you paid this for us, that we are in good relationship with you, Jesus, when we give our life to you, and that we have the freedom to love our neighbor, to display your gospel and your truth to this world. God, we love you so much. Bring us close to you in this time. We thank you. Amen.